everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And I'm sure everybody recognizes our guest today, who almost now, at this point, needs no introduction. We have John Lundwall back with us. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, guys. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Landon. Great to be back. Yeah, you you. are back. (laughs) I might as well just move in. (laughs) We may as well just, you know, set up some kind of a studio together where we do research and put out content. So, no, it's been a really interesting week. And I, I think we'll tell our viewers about this last Friday. We dropped a episode, which I hope most of you, I think most of you have seen. It was called Groundbreaking Research uh, Dismantles Book of Mormon Authenticity. And this is with our friend John Lundwall, who put forth some extremely interesting research and information about uh, the early Americas, pre-Columbian and the Book of Mormon. Um, It just, we thought, oh, this is really interesting. We'll probably get we thought we'd get a, some views, Landon, right? We were kind of like, this will be interesting. I wonder if people will like this. Well, why don't you tell us what happened, Landon? <laughs> well, w- once we interviewed uh, Dr. Lundwall, we ought to call I'm him. I'm sorry, doctor. Lundwall. Yes. It's, yes. It's some of the yes. questioning of people, we want to make sure they understand that he yes. does. Rebecca, Rebecca you, you can call me John. Landon, <laughs> okay. call me doctor. Lundwall. Okay. Yes. He's <laughs> our friend, John, but he's an incredible scholar and a PhD, and we love him. So that's right. So uh, the 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 ideas and the concepts that were shared in that video have just really taken off. We've had we just came back from Sunstone. We just had a ton of people coming up to us saying how incredible the information was. Uh, we've got a lot. Originally, we got a lot of very positive comments from uh, uh, from post Mormons saying I'd never heard anything like this. This was really exciting. And then we started getting, you guys suck, the Book of Mormon's true type of comments. <laughs> a lot of apologists, I think, found the video, which is good, too, because we welcome all kinds of dialogue about any, you know, any research, any thoughts. Uh, we we welcome that. So that's kind of what this episode is going to be all about. And like Landon said, we did just go to Sunstone and John came with us and got to meet a lot of people that had seen his his video. They were asking all kinds of questions. I mean, it, it just is such an innovative way to think about things that people were really, really interested. And so we appreciate everybody that came up to talk to us. Um, just on the side, I'd like to say, if you did come up to talk to us, please like send, send me a Facebook message, connect with us so that we don't lose that connection because we really appreciated everybody that came up and, and shared their story and what Mormonish has meant to them and and also talked about specifically Dr. Lundwell's video too. So please don't let us lose that connection. We really appreciated meeting all of you. But um, the the question we were asked most is when is he coming back on again? (laughs) <laughs> so I said, Dr. John, I think we need to like do something quick. So uh, that's why we're putting this out fairly quickly, just to, as John said, sort of flush out some of the concepts that we talked about in the first video, and maybe talk about some of the comments, um, both post-Mormon and also apologetic that we got so we can kind of understand the bigger picture of this research. And I will say, I think if you have not watched the first video, that maybe it would be good to watch that first before you watch this. I think maybe that might be something just so you understand what we're talking about. But we are absolutely thrilled to dive a little deeper, even deeper still, um, into this amazing topic that is just creating ripples in the apologetic community and also in the post-Mormon community. So that being said, welcome, John. And I think he has some wonderful slides prepared again. Let's just dive right in. Uh, thank you. I, uh, uh, You know, I have five theses that I talked about last time. Uh, we went over the first two um i'm not going to do the next three so i apparently we're we're doing another podcast because i still have those to do uh tonight i just 
thought we would go over some of the questions and comments. I had several people give me questions and comments uh, uh, yesterday at Sunstone. Thank you for inviting me, by the way. And uh, that was a great experience. I met lots of people and uh, I, not, not only was it fun and informative, but you know, most of all, all the people I met, um, uh, that was great. So, um, so tonight I thought we would just uh, go over some of these ideas, uh, flesh out uh, a few of the concepts that I was getting asked about and uh, answer a few questions. That's going to take a couple hours. I do apologize for the timing. I last oh episode was goodness. two and a half hours. <laughs> I, you know, John, don't forget, post-Mormons are used to watching Mormon stories. A good six-hour episode, that's nothing to these guys. They are more <laughs> than happy. They're like two and a half hours. It's a breeze. So no, and we we people who contacted us yesterday, they all said, oh no, not even too long. You have to go through the research. You have to understand it to under, you know, to get to what the nugget of the truth is here. So please do not worry about the time. We are in it to win it tonight. Take all the time you need. All right. Well, I'll I'll take some time, but uh <laughs> let's let's uh, again, you just ask questions as we go and uh let's do this. Great. All right, just as a quick summary of what we talked about last time, uh, here are really two different ways to conceive the world, two different cognitive envelopes, cosmovisions um, that blend into each other over time. And so on the left, uh, we have Isaiah there writing down the revelations of the Lord in a literate religion. And on the right, we have a Mayan priest who is dancing his religion consonant with celestial cycles in the sacred calendar. Well, there it is. Um, re literate religion focuses on laws, doctrines, sermons, and is written as a history. Whereas um, what I'm calling secondary oral uh, religion, you don't write your, your religion, you dance it. Uh, it's orthopraxit. You, it's it's performed in rituals attached to the cosmology. Uh, in agricultural societies, almost all of this is agricultural based. Uh, the gods uh, are connected to the agricultural cycle, uh, the solar lunar cycle, which is connected to the agricultural cycle. And you know, uh, we don't get uh, sermons on uh, the agricultural gods in the Bible, but please know they're agricultural gods. Baal is an agricultural god, a storm god, a war god. So they also serve political functions. But um, uh, so uh, in Mesoamerica, you've, you, you have this paradigm through every period of Nephite history, and it, it pervades everything. And uh, whereas the Book of Mormon is, is a completely different kind of thinking, uh, which is as we talked about last time, utterly anachronistic. In order to, for the, the dancing religion to emerge into the written religion, there has to be some processes that develop. We can track them through time. They take centuries, and the Book of Mormon assumes that these processes have happened not only since day one, but from the very beginning, from in the beginning, that they... Th this is a... Uh, this is an a priori assumption Joseph Smith has about the world and about all uh, scripture and religion. 
and it's embedded in the text and it makes it so that the book of mormon is i mean it, impossible not impossible to be a a tight translation so uh let's get into this and John, i just get, just yeah. before, before you go there um, you if you're secondary oral if you're a secondary oral culture does that mean that you have no writing system no pictographs no no oh, thank you thank you so oral primary oral is no writing and, and so this is confusing people uh primary orality is no writing whatsoever secondary orality is writing the people are literate but writing is mostly used for economic purposes less than five percent of the population is literate it's the royal caste who is is doing the writing and the religious writings are completely ensconced in this uh, oral noetic, in this oral thought world of dance, ritual, cosmology, agriculture. Um, so yeah, that's an important point to make. The Mayan, for example, had writing. So they're, they're literate, but they're not thinking in the same thought world that the uh, priests who wrote the Bible are thinking in. It's a it's a different thought world. They're 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 not writing their religion. They're dancing it. Um, and it turns out at 600 BCE, you know, the Israelite priests were also dancing their religion. Uh, so we we just forget these things and we just assume that it's all literate and uh, there's writing happening from the very beginning. So. Um, Maya Mesoamerica is, I'm classifying as secondary orality. They have writing, but their primary mode of uh, religion is in orthopraxy, ritual, cosmology attached to their agricultural cycle. Uh, that is a completely different worldview than what we get in uh, the Bible and in the Book of Mormon. And uh, tonight I'm going to show you how those transitions happen. So um, that'll kind of help flesh out what I've been talking about. Okay. One other thing I wanted, to, I was hoping you could clarify because we kept getting comments on this uh, where people kept saying the Book of Mormon didn't happen in Mesoamerica. So the fact that you're saying it happened in Mesoamerica, uh, you're wrong. And I want to point out, you're not saying that the Book of Mormon happened in Mesoamerica. You're not saying it happened in North America. You're saying it didn't happen at all, basically. But can you explain a little bit about why we're talking Mesoamerica specifically? Uh, good question. The uh, Mesoamerica is the only place where writing emerges, and the Book of Mormon Society is run by texts. So you have to have writing. Uh, there's no writing in South America. Um, in, in fact, I mean, so there's always exceptions in history that the apologists will glom onto. The, I, there's only one empire that is several city states being run by a centralized government. There's only one empire I'm aware of that operated without writing, and that's the Inca Empire in South America, Peru. Um, but they're 1300 to colonial contact. That's the age of that empire. But they did have a way to keep records. They, they were record keepers. They, they, they kept them in textiles, in quipu knots. Um, Mesoamerica is the only place where we get writing to emerge. Uh, and it emerges rather late. This was another question. 
again, someone was arguing about the Olmec script. The earliest form of writing we get in the Americas is in Central America. There are some glyphs that have been found that are attributed to the Olmec, their Olmec culture, uh, dated to about 900 BCE. But scholars are still arguing whether that is a writing system. Uh, by 650 BCE, we've got some more Olmec glyphs that scholars have said, well, this is a writing system. And then, you know, Zapotec at 500 BCE and Mayan at 200 BCE. And so in any case, writing in the other side of the world emerges 34, 3500 BCE. So you can see there's a, you know, almost 3000 year difference uh, how, where writing emerges. And so in the old world, you have numerous centuries of the evolution of writing embedded in society. And, and there's all kinds of changes that occur. Well, you don't have that in, in Central America or in the Americas. It's, it, it's a late innovation. It's a late invention. Um, and uh, and it's a, a logosyllabic script. That is, it's picture writing, but some of the symbols represent syllables. And in, in these picture writing scripts, uh, there's all kinds of puns. There's all kinds of sound puns, visual puns, ritual puns. You know, they could be writing something uh, that says one thing, but they're punning on a ritual that they're performing. And translators have no way of knowing that. I mean, it, it, you, you, some of them can start putting these puns together uh, when, they, when they start seeing the text being associated with pictures. Mayan writing is often associated with pictures, just like early Egyptian writing. You, you have a picture of the thing and then the text that describes the picture that, that's uh, very true in Mesoamerica. Uh, so, Are you uh, saying it's a meme? Uh, <laughs> a picture with the text described? Yes, it, yes. It, it, in some ways, I guess it could be called a meme. It's, uh, the text refers to a framework of thought. And that framework is not rooted in the text. It's rooted in their their culture and their dances and their cosmovision and their political structure. And, and that's what you have to know in order to be able to interpret the text. And, and that's why interpreting these early writing systems is incredibly difficult uh, because there's this whole thought world that lies behind them that has been lost. And, and so it's not just a matter of translating the text, it's it's regathering, uh, you know, the cultural context of it. Um, anyway, did I answer your question? Would, would those would those writing systems of the Olmec uh, and the Mayans be considered uh, secondary oral or would they be uh, lit literary, I guess? Well, OK, so it's secondary orality is, is the thinking but you know it's a text they're literate uh they're they're writing in a text i mean again the word for writing in mayan is synonymous for their word for painting the the scribe was a painter who painted the image of the divine of the gods uh so we think of a a literate scribe writing words describing ideas whereas the mayan scribe was um, transferring the divine from the eternal into the temporal 
through paint and ritual because uh, the religious texts are still are being danced. Um, you know, the texts are just a footnote to to the ritual cycle that's happening. So. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a little bit confusing because I, I, I say this is the oral secondary world. And people think then that they're oral and not literate. Well, they're using writing, but that writing is in service to their dances, ritual, cosmology, agriculture. It's not in service to their laws, doctrines, sermons, histories. I mean, those things are implicit, but but th there are uh, there's a big dividing line. So um, so secondary orality has texts. Uh, less than five percent of the population use those texts and it takes um you know the best civilization to compare the book of mormon society to would be something like rome rome uh had a alphabetic script they were polytheistic um and we'll talk about that in a little bit here in a few slides um but only only late roman period it's estimated that about 20% of the population in urbanized areas could read and write, right? In the rural areas, you're still at less than 5% of the people who can read and write. Um, and then after the fall of Rome, literacy rates are very difficult to track. Uh, but it, so 20%, however, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a tipping point. At 20%, you have your entire political caste that is writing and your merchant class that is writing. Your politics, your laws, your religion, your priestly class is literate, and your commerce uh, is all literate. And so your civilization is being run by texts, and that kind of civilization is producing millions of texts. Um, and we have tens of thousands of remnants, so most of it does get lost. Well, this is what we should be finding in Nephite society. One of the comments was, uh, you know, it all got lost after the battle at the very end. Uh, only a small group of people were writing, and um, it was all destroyed by the Lamanites. Uh, unfortunately, the Book of Mormon does not bear this paradigm out. Um I mean, we already went through many of the verses, but their politics, their commerce, and their religion were all being run by texts. It's textual from the very beginning. Uh, we're going to go over that in the next slide. Um, and so it's going to produce hundreds of thousands, if not millions of texts uh, as a result of that. And if 99% of that gets lost, we're still going to have thousands, tens of thousands of scraps. Uh, written on pottery and stone and textile and clay um and so even on buildings we see that in rome across the building you see right. etched in stone writing one of the you know when text emerges it is primarily an extension of the power of the state this is complicated because this is you know history is a foreign land and we're tourists and we bring our Hawaiian t-shirts with us and we forget the, the the mindscape and landscape of the ancient world but there is no separation between churches and state in the ancient world writing is an extension of the power of the state so wherever the state wants to manifest its power it produces uh writing you see writing on the palaces on the temples uh 
on on structures throughout the ancient world, uh, both in Mesoamerica and in the old world of Near East, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, you know, Greece, Rome. Um, the writing is 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 everywhere. It's it's the billboard of the state, and so so to say that we have. I mean, look, uh, the apologists pick and choose. They pick and choose the facts that they want to try to get the Book of Mormon to fit. Someone made the comment that it's a, a small uh, group of people who are literate. They're writing behind the scenes. It's not a huge civilization. They're still living in tents by Third Nephi. I mean, there's so many contradictions in this a way of conceiving what the Book of Mormon world is. First off, if you, after 600 years, are still living in tents, you're not an agricultural society. That's a nomadic or semi-nomadic society, right? Well, we know the Book of Mormon is not a nomadic or semi-nomadic society. They have city-states and they have wars that where tens of thousands of people are fighting each other. And this isn't the end of the period. This is Deering. This is Alma and Helaman, right? Um, well, if you have a, a battle where you have uh, 10,000 people on each, each side, how are you feeding them, right? You've got to have a massive agricultural base. In order to have a massive agricultural base, you're not semi-nomadic. You're not living in tents. Yet you've, you're planted in a, a city that has a fields that is producing a ton of produce uh, to feed thousands of people because you're having a war with uh, 5, 10, 20, 30,000 people, right? You've got to feed them. You've got to close them. you got to arm them. There's got to be supply lines, right? This, this uh, shows you the kind of society that you're dealing with. And, it, and so, and all of that, the Book of Mormon tells us is being run by text. They, the, the generals write each other, all the prophecies are kept in writing. The laws are kept in writing. The, the the wars are managed and written about in writing. The history is kept in writing. This shows us that we're not dealing with, uh, you know, one or two percent literate caste living in tents. We're dealing with a society that has at least up to 20 percent literacy rate uh, that is urbanized, agricultural and literate. Well, that is, by the way. Um, how basically all Protestants saw the ancient world after the Protestant Reformation. The oral tradition was completely lost by the Protestant Reformation, and biblical studies have actually been mired in a literate bias of history. Um, and so even today, many biblical scholars, when reading the Bible, tend to overinflate literary patterns in ancient history, forgetting that, mm, you know, a lot of these stories are coming out of oral tradition, and they treat the oral tradition as a sort of fuzzy literate one, or as a memorized literate one. An oral tradition is a literate story you tell around a campfire. No, 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 no. The oral tradition is a completely different cosmovision that is danced and sung and chanted, uh, attached to completely different metaphysics. Um, and you know, these are two different thought worlds. So, and, and we actually see that in the Bible in that the oldest writings of the Bible are Psalms, uh, which yes, are exactly. songs. Exactly. Songs. Well, actually, most of the Psalms in the Bible, the book of Psalms are ritual hymns. 
people would go to the temple and they would give the priest of the temple a payment, you know, a bird, an ox, a sheep, uh, and ask them for a blessing. And the Psalms is the blessing the priest gave the person in song form, in ritual form. They would sacrifice the animal. It didn't have to be an animal. It could have been grain or, you know, generally it's food because they're feeding the priest. They're feeding the, uh, yeah. Yeah, right? It's, it's a form of taxation. Um, but, uh, and so the priest then sings a ritual hymn as he does the sacrifice. And that's what gets recorded as our Psalms. But the earliest text we have, again, it's uh, the wife of Moses, book of Exodus, and it's a ritual hymn. So this world here, this dances, rituals, cosmology, I mean, that exists through the first temple period. And we've forgotten it uh, because it's been totally overwritten by uh, the, not even the second temple period, in, in the thought world of the CEs, <laughs> medieval uh, reformation christianity so so um when we peer back we realize you know what uh not even nephi is operating in this world of laws doctrine sermons and histories the first nephi he's not the, 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 that world isn't there yet so it, it's you know it's merging but it's uh it's very hard to make an argument that there is a set of brass plates that is a proto-Bible, which is what the Book of Mormon says. We'll go over that in the next slide. So um, it's extremely difficult to make that argument in my view. Okay. Any other questions? We no, might as soon as we go. <laughs> yeah, as we go. I'm sure we will. I just always think about the title of liberty. I mean, maybe that's the biggest uh, anachronism in the entire Book of Mormon, right? <laughs> well, uh, you know, so let's just look at that. Uh, Captain uh -oh, Moroni would have, sorry. <laughs> Captain Moroni would have had writing. Um, it, well, first off, according to the Book of Mormon, it should be alphabetic writing. It should be alphabetic Semitic writing um, that he's writing and he's he's planting on every tower uh, in every city across the land. And so who's reading it? Uh, well, all the governments of every city should be able to read it. All the merchants in every city should be able to read it. All the priests in every city should be able to read it. If it's an alphabetic script and all those people are reading it, the, the advantage of an alphabetic script is how, how much easier it is to teach, to learn. And not only that, but we kept getting, you know, we have the word book used in the Book of Mormon. They're using books as opposed to scrolls. Uh, it, you should have a minimum of 20% of your population reading. Now, I'm just saying that based off the contours of history. Right. The, the apologist could say the Book of Mormon doesn't say that. Well, it implies it in the world it has created. In, in the backdrop of all the action that's happening in that narrative, all that has to be there for that uh, action to happen. And so um, I'm just pointing that out. Right. I, this is what I teach. And I'm just applying it to the Book of Mormon, saying this produces huge problems for the Book of Mormon. Let's let's say there is an elite cast. Okay. Only the highest top people can write, but they can write in this form that the Book of Mormon has come from, this historical 
literary style, not uh, not the oral style. Would that transfer to the people when they're being read to and when their government is being run, would the mindset change because the top have that literary, that ability to write in that? Brilliant field? question, Landon. I've been trying to say this and apparently I have just utterly failed. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. We are told that Ammon, for example, teaches the Lamanites out of the scriptures, out of the written text, right? All the prophecies are written in scripture, and that is what the people learn by. When uh, King Benjamin gives his speech, right, in his tower, and all the people, you know, come and set up their tents, there's their tents, right, uh, and um, listen to his speech, he says that uh, the words of his speech were written and distributed to all the people who couldn't make it, right? So his sermon which is anachronistic, is uh, being distributed by text to all the people. Well, so you, you could argue all the people aren't literate. There might be readers who are receiving the text of King Benjamin's speech. It's like a general conference report. And going out to every city, and then there's other gatherings where, where people gather and the readers are reciting it. But then, okay, so... Uh, but here's the thing. If your religion is entirely embedded in text, then the psychological impulse is to learn to read, to practice your religion. So um, your, when your religion is practiced in dance, in uh, public rituals, people gather and they they interact with uh, the ritual and the dance. Very often you have dancing societies, oral societies or dancing societies. And it turns out much of the population are part of some sort of clan that participates in the dance, right? So we would get uh, the royal priest doing a dance, but we, we even have um, echoes of this being practiced by common people. Uh, they're imitating, you know, the religion. If if your religion is entirely uh, embedded in text, which is what the Book of Mormon tells us, it's it's written down and distributed through reading the scriptures. Then uh, more and more people are going to learn to read and write in order to participate in the religious world. Uh, and if it's an alphabetic text, more and more people will be able to to do it because that is, you know, you only have to learn a couple different char dozen characters in order to learn the writing system. You know, a mine has eight, nine hundred characters and very, you know, with all these puns and uh, it's incredibly difficult <clears throat> to master and learn. So uh, you, the answer, the short answer to your question is if. There were a small cast of priests uh, writing. If your religion is textual, your population will bend towards the text. So again, we can look in the Middle Ages. Most people didn't read or write, but you still have. Um, uh, but here's what we have. Uh, you have the priestly class, political class, and merchant class that are literate in the Middle Ages. So you've got that sort of 20% uh, 
baseline in urbanized areas. Uh, the illiterate um, do not read, but the ch chapel's cathedrals are filled with iconography of the texts. And then you do have readers. That's what the priests did. The Latin priests, the, they read the text and you went to the worshiping space and you saw the text in statuary, stained glass window, art, textile. Okay. So that is how that society worked. And so, uh, and, and what, what is the iconography? Well, it's all centered around monotheistic Jesus and the saints. Um, so, a lot of Virgin Mary in the in the Mary cult. So uh, we should be finding similar echoes in in Meso in Mesoamerica in the archaeology of Mesoamerica. Yes. So so in the 1300s, even though the people can't read, they're going to the churches. They know the law. They know the scripture. They know the allegories. They know the parables. They know the literary. They're not dancing. The religion That's at correct. this point they know the religion and the laws even though they can't read and we would have seen the same thing even with the caste system uh the people would be thinking in that literary style they'd know the laws the prophecies the the things that is that correct that is correct uh and then um yes you, you know just as a uh point of reference that transition takes a long time um when the Torah is written, 5th, 4th century BCE, uh, Israelite priests are still dancing. There's a scroll in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's dated to about 100 BCE called the Songs of Sabbath Sacrifice. And it gives us the a religious view of this Mayan priest here. It's a, it's a, it's a text that goes over uh, the, the New Year's ritual. So at the New Year's, there's a 13-week cycle. So at every Sabbath, the priests gather and do a ritual dance. And what do they do? They are ritually dancing through the temple in heaven. They're, they're performing a cosmic dance, dancing through the cosmos um, in a 13-week ritual cycle. That's the Dead Sea Scrolls. In uh, Gnostic texts, in early CEs, we have the Acts of St. Thomas, the Acts of St. John, where we learn that the, the atonement, the grace of Christ from the cross is performed in a dance. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and then I may have my council and date wrong. If there's a, a, a good Catholic listening, I believe it's the council of Toledo sixth century CE when the Catholic church finally bans dancing at the altars. And they're not banning the social dance, you know, where everyone's gathering, bringing a jello salad and having, uh, you know, young a women's golden night. green ball. <laughs> That's right. They're they're banning the liturgical dances that had been practiced. And by the sixth century, they're almost all gone. And this is just we're getting rid of it permanently. Uh, and so it tells you that this way of of practicing religion lasted well after the Torah, right? And during early Christianities. Um, and so, so there's, but the Book of Mormon assumes that this evolution has already happened, that religion is entirely textual from day one. And uh, this is anachronism. And thus, 
the text itself. I mean, the, the whole text is anachronistic, uh, as we talked about last time. Did that answer your question? That was a good question. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Are we good? We're good. I yep. think we're good. I think we can move on. This is fascinating. All right. I just wanted to go over um, just how literate the cosmovision of the Book of Mormon is and of Joseph Smith. He is, he conceives of history through literacy entirely. And so here I have page one of the Book of Mormon, the very first page, okay? First Nephi chapter one, verses eight through 17. Landon, do you want to read that for me? Sure. And they came down and went forth upon the face of the earth. And the first came and stood before my father and gave unto him a book and bade him that he should read. Uh, let me just interrupt. Okay. This is Lehi's vision. He has a vision where he, where God appears to him, and in this vision, God shows him what? A book. A book, right? Okay, so, and bade him read. Well, let's learn what he read. And it came to pass that as he read, he was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. And he read, saying, Woe, woe unto Jerusalem, for I have seen thine abominations. Yea, and many things did my father read concerning Jerusalem, that it should be destroyed and the inhabitants thereof, many should perish by the sword and many should be carried away captive into Babylon. All right. So written in this heavenly book are all the prophecies and all the things that are going to happen to Jerusalem. Lehi sees the future by reading a book. The cosmos is managed by a text. <laughs> it's God's book. Of course, the book itself is anachronistic. The Codex isn't invented in Rome until after 600 BCE. I mean, the earliest Codex, maybe 5th century, but they're, they're not being really used until the 3rd century BCE. So, um, so you know, at least that word should say scroll. Maybe we could say, well, maybe that's just a translator's error. But the fact is, God has all of the all prophecy written in a text in a book. And that's what Lehi sees. And that's what spurs him to leave Jerusalem and start this whole narrative cycle by reading a heavenly book, a heavenly text. All right. Here is uh, verses 16 and 17. And now I, Nephi, do not make a full account of the things which my father hath written. So Lehi reads a book. And he writes down all his visions and dreams. For he hath written many things which he saw in visions and dreams. And he hath also written many things which he prophesied and spake unto his children, of which I shall not make a full account. But I shall make an account of my proceedings in my days. Behold, I make an abridgment of the record of my father upon plates, which I have made with mine own hands. Wherefore, after I have abridged the record of my father, then will I make an account of my own life. So here we learn that Lehi has not only read the heavenly book and sees uh, past and future in a heavenly book, but he's writing everything down. He's writing his dreams down, his visions down, his prophecies down, his teachings to his children, everything that has happened. I mean, he's writing. How is he doing this? <laughs> they're, out, they're out in the wilderness, right? You need, you need uh, parchments or papyri scrolls, lots of ink. Uh, lots of, you know, how, how is this happening? But it, it, the entire thing is being written. The entire, it's, it's history making. He's keeping a history. 
they're not doing that at this period. <laughs> so so um, this is all anachronistic. Well, it gets worse because um, he's uh, even making his own books and abridging them. I that's mean, correct. Oh, that's exactly, right. like he's a librarian almost, <laughs> or an editor. <laughs> That is correct. I think people forget the infrastructure you would need to even have a pen in your hand and a parchment. You know what? I, that would be in place to create those things, right? There's a lot behind that Rebecca, to make parchment, to make a, a writing good... implement. You know, you just don't think about it. You take it for granted. Or like a steel sword, right? The entire infrastructure behind that to have that item in your hand. You got to think. <laughs> that is such a good point. Uh, if you have, if you're keeping at this point, Day one, they're leaving Jerusalem and everything's being kept in a written record. Uh, you you know, people just think, oh, he's carrying a suitcase with a pad of paper and pen and he's just writing it down. No, no. First off, there is no paper. Everything's expensive. Uh, you, you, you're probably writing on parchment, which is animal skin, right? And the, the process of making an animal skin writable, it's a process, it, they have to they have to have herds they have to have time to skin the animals tan the skins dry the skins turn them in, in into riding surfaces they have to make inks um and, and ride them with styluses you're right there's this whole ecosystem of writing that has to exist in order for this to happen and they have to do this while they're building a transoceanic ship <laughs> Which also needs a huge ecosystem of technology and tools and in order uh, for you to create that uh, in order to get over to the Americas. Uh, and again, how many people are you dealing with? Uh, two families in Zoram, right? 20 people. You know, and, and the apologists say, well, they could have other slaves or, you know, they don't want to mention slaves, but they could have other other people uh, with them. And, you know, it could be. Once again, it could be a thousand people. This is very doable. <laughs> and 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 these are not the, these people would have to be generalists. They they do it all. They they make they make the iron, they make the furnaces, they make the ship, they make the ink, they make the paper. That's a lot of that's a very generalist person uh, yeah. where these are more specialized high-tech skills I, at that time. Oh. <laughs> Uh, again, a very good point because writing derives from specialization. Um, you know, I'm often asked, you know, I do go out and look at the rock imagery in Utah and most of it's pretty rudimentary stick figures. Right. And I'm often asked why, why is the art so rudimentary? Well, that's because the person carving that wears all the hats he's he he has to carve that but he has to hunt and he has to plant he has to do uh social rituals he has to trade he has to there's just no way uh in, when you get really sophisticated art um it's because your civilization has developed specializations and that's based off you have a lot of extra food a lot of extra produce and now you have enough where you can have an artist class and all they do is art and yet, you know, even these societies, they do make sophisticated art, but they tend to be portable. Their sophisticated art, you know, like the rock imagery societies, their sophisticated art is in tattoos or, um, 
you know, ritual headdresses, right? Those are really sophisticated. Uh, but when, when you start getting uh, incredible statuary and architecture, you've developed uh, specialization. Writing is a specialization. It appears when you have uh, a plethora of foodstuffs and a uh, demographic, a population demographic, where you've got all the people growing the crops, all the people managing the village or city, and uh, all the people uh, performing the religious rituals who can learn to write, right? So it's total specialization. That's a very good point. So um, I don't know, where were we going with that? <laughs> <laughs> It was another tangent. They're amazing. That's right. Let's go back to the slide. That'll keep us on track. There's so many interesting tangents, and I know our viewers love everyone. Are, so. are we? Are, is this interesting? Should are, are we? Am I doing okay? John, you have no idea the feedback that we are getting on the information that you're putting out there. So please continue. All right. We are well, a captive let audience. Just, let me just finish this. I, I call this slide Mormon Inception. Um, so this is chapter five. Right. So chapter one, Lehi reads a heavenly book and that starts the entire journey. Well, chapter five, uh, Lehi says, look, we can't leave until we get what? Wait. A book. Yeah. Uh, so let's just read about this book that they have to get. So, Landon, could you read those verses? Sure. And it came to pass that he spake unto me, saying, Behold, I have dreamed a dream in the which the Lord hath commanded me that thou and thy brethren shall return to Jerusalem. For behold, Laban hath the record of the Jews and also a genealogy of my forefathers, and they are engraven upon plates of brass. All right. Then they go get the plates and then we learn what's on the plates. Could you read the other block uh, text block? And after they had given thanks unto the God of Israel, my father, Lehi took the records which were engraven upon the plates of brass, and he did search them from the beginning. And he beheld that they did contain the five books of Moses. Anachronism. Oh, oh yep. Which gave an account of the creation of the world and also of Adam and Eve, who were our first parents. Anachronism. And also a record of the Jews from the beginning, even down to the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. And also the prophecies of the holy prophets from the beginning, even down to the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah, and also many prophecies which have been spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah. Wow. <laughs> wow. So those brass plates are the Bible all the way up until Jeremiah, all the way up until 600 BCE. It has the five books of Moses. <laughs> That's a really nice trick. You know, when 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 did those get conceived? Yeah, they those weren't put together till after the return from Babylon. Total. This is this is Deutero Isaiah, this passage. But it shows you again that uh there's a heavenly book that runs the cosmos, and the entire Israelite history has been kept in a book. They have to get the book in order to run their civilization because they're going to model their civilization after the things they read in a book. And then they're going to write their own books. Right. And so this idea that there's only a few people write, writing in the background, and that's why we don't find any of their writing. It's really difficult. Um, to, it's really difficult to apply that, but turns out um, it gets even more because <laughs> 
This is Moses chapter six in the Pearl of Great Price. And we learn that book writing has occurred since the very first day. Right. And so um, do you want to read that, Landon? This is about Adam and and their children. And then began these men to call upon the name of the Lord, and the Lord blessed them. And a book of remembrance was kept, in which was recorded in the language of Adam, for it was given unto as many as called upon God to write by the spirit of inspiration. And by them their children were taught to read and write, having a language which was pure and undefiled. Now this same priesthood which was in the beginning shall be in the end of the world also. Well, um... What we have then is this template. The cosmos is run by God's book. In a, uh, heaven is literate, right? Adam is given a book and they write, uh, they read and write and learn to read and write. And by the way, as I read this text, the language of Adam in writing is what is called the priesthood, which is really interesting. But the priest, the creation is conceived in literacy uh, in order for Lehi and Nephi to start their journey. They need the brass plates, which is a book. Lehi is writing a book. Nephi turns all this into his own gold plates and writes his own book. And then we're told throughout the entire Book of Mormon text that there are massive records. Every, everything's being kept, uh, which eventually get turned into the gold plates of Mormon, Right. So it's a book within a book within a book. That's Mormon inception. Um, and I, I, you know, that is uh, a very late. That does not exist in 600 BCE. Okay. So um, anachronism. It starts with this massive anachronism. Well, we haven't even read one word of Deuterisaiah. It, we're on page one and we're in a huge textual anachronism. So. I find it kind of ironic that it seems like the only person that doesn't need a book or the plates was actually Joseph Smith. He didn't need them <laughs> to translate. Seems to be the only one. Uh, that's correct. Right. You know, I, that's. He did well, need a rock. <laughs> uh, he he, used but he a rock didn't need the book. Yeah. Well, clearly he was uh, citing texts. Right. I mean, how much of the Book of Mormon is uh, the Bible? 15, 18 percent. Uh, he's citing uh, sermons. Right. Grant Palmer showed that. So he's synchronized, uh, syncretizing different sources to produce the Book of Mormon. I, you know, in, in my view, the last frontier of Book of Mormon studies is figuring out how this text was put together. That excites me. I, I hope that we can gather a group of people and really dig into that because uh, I think it's doable. Um, so far, what has been offered is single source uh, options. It, it was copied from the view of the Hebrews or the Spalding manuscript. Well, we already know he's using multiple sources. He's using sermons and the Bible. And uh, we all already know some things to look for. Uh, based off markers in the Book of Mormon text. So he's using multiple sources. So, you know, the apologists say, well, he didn't have multiple sources in his barn, but uh, I, I, this is a very sterilized 
incorrect view of Joseph Smith and of history. And as long as you keep it simplistic, sterile, and unattached to reality, sure enough, it works. Um, all right, uh, I, I'm going to transition real quick. Um, I, I had some comments and I just wanted to talk uh, just real briefly about uh, just a transition in thought here. I've got two people on the screen that I personally like a lot. Joseph Campbell on the left, Hugh Nibley on the right. Uh, I went to the uh, Joseph Campbell Graduate School. They, they had his private letters and papers and books, his library archives. And it just was a pure joy for me to read the books Joseph Campbell was reading and read his handwritten annotations in, in his books. Um, and so I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And it turns out I spent a lot, of, I, I met Hugh Nibley almost every morning for a year. <laughs> I was, uh, I, my undergrad was at BYU Provo. And for a year I had a, uh, an honors class in the Mazer building and I'd walk up the South steps really early in the morning to get there. And uh, I would pass, almost daily during that time, Hugh Nibley walking the other way. And he was always reading a book. And, uh, you know, I, I recognized him. And most of our conversations were good morning. He was always polite. Um, but, you know, I, I read the collected works of Hugh Nibley through the 90s and attended lectures and, uh, and, and chatted with him a few times and uh, had, had, had that great, great experience. I bring these what two guys up. What year was that? What year Let's, was that, John? That's early, very early 90s. 90, okay, I just wondered because 91. I lived next door to Hugh Nibley and I used to leave at the same time every morning with him to walk up those stairs that you described. And so we do kind of walk by side by side, but he was incredibly fit. He used to beat me up the stairs and I was not unfit. So <laughs> I know exactly that walk that you're talking about. That's so interesting. Not only was he uh, incredibly fit, but I don't, I don't know how he read and walked. He always yeah, had no. a book. He always did. He That's what I it. thought too. All yep. the kids yep. and this do would that have been, now with the phone. They all do that now. For me, this would have been probably 88. So probably a few years before you were there. But yeah, he was always walking up those stairs. Yeah, so that's, that's great. That's, that's amazing. Well, um, I, I bring these two up uh, for a simple point. Um, by the end of my first year of graduate school, I had deconstructed Joseph Campbell. So Joseph Campbell has this monomyth theory. And Campbell's monomyth theory is that all myths derive from a single source, the psyche. Uh, myths are autonomous uh, structures of the psyche that, um, you know, it's the hero with a thousand faces. The, the myth represents a psychological process of individuation. And, and so it's the human experience unfolding in narrative form and human beings are autonomous storytellers this is how we create meaning in our lives by creating stories so uh well you know i i read campbell for years i i love reading joseph campbell even after deconstructing him i still love reading joseph campbell but what bothered me was the mono part of his monomyth theory he writes in the hero with a thousand faces Myth is psychology misread as biography, uh, history, and cosmology. And the way I assessed it, I, I just disagree. I think myth is biography, 
history, cosmology, there are multiple threads that we've, and one of them is the psyche. So I, I, you know, so when I was able to say, you know, I just, what Joseph Campbell was doing is he was creating a theory of everything. I'm going to create this theory that's going to explain all of ancient religion and all the ancient myths into one paradigm. And it's that which bothered me. I, I, the, um, there are multiple threads that weave together that unfolds history. And I don't think you can glum everything on to one thread. Uh, and the monomyth theory is very much a one, one thread theory. And when I was able to articulate that, literally, I was sitting in my desk with my books behind me. And when I, 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 one weekend, I said, I just disagree with this theory of everything. You know, I, I was able to articulate that. And then I turned around and I looked at all my books that I had. And I was just scanning them thinking, how many myth theorists have I read that write in their own monomyth theory? They've got their own platform and their own, uh, the, you know, their own way of reconstituting history. And it turns out they all did, right? Uh, Max Mueller, language, pan-Babylonians, cosmology, Jane Ellen Harrison, rituals, Levi-Strauss, structuralism. These are all different theorists trying to interpret ancient mythologies using their own version of the monomyth theory. And that's when I realized I, they're all flawed. This is the intellectual milieu of the age. They're all, they're all doing this in some way. And then my eyes rested on my shelf of Hugh Nibley. And I literally said out loud, huh, the mono-Mormon theory, <laughs> because this is what Hugh Nibley did. Hugh Nibley created he had a central idea. And that central idea is that there were priesthood keys from the very beginning and a long line of resurrected beings that transferred the priesthood keys to the people on earth as they built temples, reenacted the, the rituals and the endowments. And this is, you know, and then it filters out into other cultures. And so Nibley has the mono-Mormon theory. And uh, generally when I listen to apologist today it's a version of the monomormon theory when when you know someone like i'm not ridiculing these guys and by the way i still enjoy reading you nibbler i i you know i i understand where he's coming from and he's 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 written tons of great stuff so but when i hear someone like mulestein say I believe the gospel and therefore i take all that i learn and i filter it through the gospel. Well, what's he mean by the gospel? This is a version of the mono-Mormon theory where there are priesthood keys, it's all rooted in history, and um, we can reconstruct a religion through this, this lens. Well, both of these are deeply flawed, right? They're, they're single-thread theories that reconstitute history. And I had several people ask me how the alphabet created monotheism. And I just want to say, I'm not here to create a monomedium theory, right? The medium is the message where everything comes from one thread, such as the information system you're reading or using. The printing press did not create the scientific revolution. It created the milieu in which the scientific revolution could arise. Right. But there are a lot of other things that were happening. Right. The invention of the alphabetic script did not create monotheism. It created the milieu in which 
monotheism could arise. There are a lot of different threads that were interwoven with it. And so I'm just going to go into that because it turns out that that's going to kind of press out some of the ideas I presented in the first lecture. And then we're going to return to the Book of Mormon and show, sure enough, there's just the entire worldview is so anachronistic um, because in order for monotheism to be produced, all these threads were weaving together uh, to produce them. And again, the Book of Mormon assumes this has already happened in 600 BCE and it hasn't, right? It's just starting. <laughs> and so um, uh, this is a huge problem. So here is my uh, template uh, for how oral peoples pass down information. They observe the cosmos. They personify it. This creates polytheism. They create outsized narratives to rece recite the things they're seeing in nature. This creates sacred narrative, which is myth. They act those narratives out in many different mediums, dancing, chanting, rituals. This is ritual. And all this is done in a sacred place. Um, which is the temenos, the sacred space. Well, while this is nice, you know, I freely admit uh, my, my graphic here is called the oral and printing press. And what I'm doing is I'm using a literate metaphor to describe an oral category. And already that's problematic. I admit my own, my own metaphor here in what I'm describing is problematic. There are aspects of orality that we have permanently lost and I'm using a literate metaphor to try to express it because I am, I'm literate and I can't get out of that thought world, but I have gone back and tried to reconstitute certain, certain ways, ancient people's thought. It, it's really strange. Uh, and so I just want to uh, talk about those when polytheism, when monotheism emerges from polytheism, every one of these systems of, how we observe co uh, the cosmos, how we tell our narratives, how we do our rituals, where we do all this, all of those have transformations that happen to them. And it's those transformations that ultimately yield uh, a different religious psychology. And this is, and so monotheism emerges. And so um, these are multiple threads that are, that are weaving in history. And I just want to talk about a couple of them. Sacred place, the manifestation of the divine. To encounter the gods, one had to be in their presence. Their presence resided in a sacred place. The place of the god or gods was where humans observed divine manifestations and experienced numinous encounter. For numerous centuries, millennium really, humans experienced the divine by pilgrimage into divine presence. They had to go to a place. Now, we don't think that way. To us, the divine is revealed in a text, okay? For most of history, there was a place you had to go to. The place was where the God dwelt on earth. So to encounter the God, you had to go to the place. The place had its own presence, its own divine presence. And you had to uh, go to the place. To this day... A faithful Muslim must, you know, do the Hajj. They must pilgrimage to Mecca. They must go to the sacred place. Um, in 
in the Mayan cosmovision, the Mayan creation that we read in the Popol Vuh, the gods try to create human beings several times and they fail the first three times. And they finally end up succeeding in creating a proper human being, which is an intelligent human being who gives them sacrifices. So the gods are being fed. Okay. And so we get this cycle where the gods, every time they try to create a human being, it's a world age. And so we get this series of mythological world ages where the gods are trying to create human beings. And um, they finally create a, a human being that is smart, can speak, and will give them sacrifices. So we'll feed the gods. And they're very happy, except there's a mistake. The human beings are too smart right? They have God's sight. They can see all the things the gods see. And they're like, well, we don't want that, right? We need a monopoly on God's sight. So they take that sight away from human beings. And that's what gives us who we are today. We're just uh, a bunch of blind, feeble <laughs> primates walking the earth, right? The human beings that live today. But the first human beings, according to this creation narrative, knew they lost the sight, and so they recreated the God site. And they did that by creating a tool called the Ibal, which is the place to see. Right? They lost the sight of the gods, so they created a place to see. Well, the place to see is the sacred place where the God dwells. And so you create this sacred place where you now have a place where you observe the cosmos. And you observe all the transformations in, uh, that happen. And this is how you're keeping your agricultural cycle. Okay. Uh, sure enough, when Venus appeared on the Western horizon in the North as an evening star, that was their rain season. That star brought the rains. So they watched for that star. That star was a God. And when that star appeared, it had a pair, the morning star, which was Venus in the morning. They, they represented these two positions of the planet as divine gods. And these become, in some way, the hero twins in their creation cycle who take heads. Uh, and so you, you now get the agricultural cycle, the cosmological cycle, the mythological cycle, all taking place in the place to see. But it takes place in the place to see. You have to be there. And one of the first things the Mayan priests, they write their Popol Vuh, their history of the Maya, after European contact. They're not writing it down because you don't write the sacred things of deity down, right? And so, but they're losing, they lost their sacred place. Uh, that, was, that was taken away from them by European colonization. And so they, they complain about that and say, well, you know, we no longer have our sacred place, so we will write the history. And they write it in, you know, uh, the European script. So, um, but the point here is, in order to worship, you need a sacred place. And this thinking dominated the world. In the old world, all, I mean, it still dominates the world, right? Uh, Mecca, Jerusalem, uh, right? They're still fighting over the sacred place. Temple Square. <laughs> right. Well, so we have a sacred text and I, I want, you know, so it's a very important point to make when Lehi says, Nephi, go get the sacred text 
because we need to build a, a society and keep our own sacred text that is anachronistic. The founding place of Jerusalem was the temple, the sacred place. And what Lehi would have asked Nephi to do was to get the idol of Yahweh in the Holy of Holies, because the idol was the emanation of the power of the divine in the sacred place. If I got that idol and I moved it to a different place, well, then my new place is cosmicized. This is where the God dwells. I've transferred the sacred place. But what they want is the sacred place, the connecting point between heaven and earth. Now, with that idol comes all the religion. So they already know the rituals, the songs and dances, right? And so you, you sing and dance with the idol in the sacred place, and that is how you're practicing religion. Well, that doesn't get written down. That's what you do. But to transfer the sacred to a new locale, Lehi would not be saying, Nephi, go get the brass plates. He'd be say, saying, Nephi, I need Yahweh, the spirit of Yahweh. Go get the, the idol, and we're going to build our own sacred place. Okay? We don't think that way. Uh, but that is the thought world of First Temple Judaism. I, you know, they're, they're writing in text, but they are still two feet in ritual and cosmology and the sacred place. You have to have a sacred. Again, these are agricultural societies. You know, Adam is cursed in our Bible, uh, book of Genesis. He's, he's cursed to toil uh, till the, the soil, right, in sweat and tears. And that tells us that the creation story started in an agrarian society, right? It didn't start, the, the one that we have in, in Genesis started when people were tilling the soil. So it's not a hunter-gatherer society. It has to come, that story has to originate after seven, 8,000 BCE when uh, agriculture was domesticated, right? Um, but in order to till the soil, you need a sacred place because you, you are now, put in a spot and your fields are around your sacred place right um and so in order to know when to plant you've got to be in that sacred place watch the stars in the sun how they move that will transfer into the seasons that will tell you when to plant in your sacred place so it turns out the sacred place is connected to how you live your agricultural site you can't separate them and so you need that sacred sacred place the temenos the temple to plant your crops in order to survive. So your deities are associated with all of that. Okay, are you following that? That is pretty straightforward, right? Oh, what yeah. happens? Didn't you see me say, wow? <laughs> I was saying it very quietly. <laughs> what happens in 587 BCE? Babylon. Babylon, Babylon destroys yeah. the temple. It sacks Jerusalem. Yeah. So here's something else that happens with the sacred, sacred place. If you're an agriculturist society, eventually you're producing surplus food. And this slowly develops into larger villages until you get city-states, urbanization. And that's where our first writing appears. When we start getting urbanized, complex you know, social structures, thousands of people living in a city-state. Well, if you've got thousands of people living in a city-state where you do need writing to, to manage that, this is your, your temple is not just where the priest communes with the God and watches the agricultural uh, 
cycle and maintains the agricultural cycle, your temple is also your political throne. It's where the king sits. Again, there's no separation between church and state. So your political power is rooted also right next to your sacred place. And sometimes it's the same thing. In Egypt and in Mesopotamia, you could not build a city before you built a temple. You cosmicized the land first. You put that idol on the altar and said, aha, our gods live here. And then you build the throne next to it. <laughs> and that's where the king sits and uh, administers the population. Religion and politics are deeply intertwined. So when uh, the Jerusalem is sacked, two things happen. The religious caste is destroyed and the political caste is destroyed. They're killed, right? Your, 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 your king and your priest are gone. The hundreds of thousands are killed and the rest are, are imported out, exported out as slaves. And um, so uh, uh, the destruction of the temple was also the destruction of the political, economic, social, and religious order. Torah was a way for a politically dispossessed people to reorganize these structures. But Torah had profound consequences for those structures. Transformations of the social and religious way took centuries to congeal into new cultural patterns. The Book of Mormon assumes these transformations have already occurred before the destruction of the temple. All right. It is probable that the Jews that are exiled turn to a new form of religion, textual religion as a way to reorganize their political power. You don't have a place. You don't have a throne. The king, which is hereditary, his family's dead. Uh, that's also the seat of your God. The God is the seat of your political power. When you don't have any of that, how are you going to reorganize the people? Right? It's not just religion. It's the state that you're trying to reorganize. Well, either you go back and you, you rebuild all those structures, but, but during exile, it appears that some people had the brilliant idea, what if we make this entire formation portable, right? We, if we turn our religion to a text, first off, in order to do that, what do you have to have? You have to have a text, right? Uh, so sure enough, um, you have to have literacy. Um, if we turn our religion to a text, then the people who write and read the text are in charge. They hold the power. And that becomes your new political organization. All right. And it turns out if you're going to consolidate that power on a text, as opposed to your agricultural cycles, and remember every Every aspect of an agricultural cycle, the rain has its own deity. The sun has its own deity. The time to plant has its own deity. The time to harvest has its own. You personify all these functions and you perform these rituals with the different deities. This is how it all emerged. Well, when you get rid of all that, you say, well, you know, we're, we're planting other people's fields as slaves. We don't care about that anymore. <laughs> how are we going to reorganize ourselves? Well, let's write a text where now, wherever we go, the sacred place is transformed from the temple and the throne 
to now a text, which means the sacred place eventually resides in the individual reading the text. That is a radical different form of religiosity. And that becomes Christianity. The sacred place is the temple of the individual. That thought takes centuries to evolve uh, in order for that to happen. And it happens through this process of turning the political and the religious into a text, it order a way to reorganize the people. And what that does is uh, it requires literacy for your religion. You, they're still dancing, but the, the impetus now is in reading and writing. And uh, the people in charge, they're the Sanhedrin. They're the literate scribes. They're the Pharisees. They're the literate scribes that run the people through texts. This is a radically new idea, and it takes centuries for that to develop after the writing of the Torah. Okay, so the Book of Mormon just assumes this has already happened. When we read the sermons in the Book of Mormon, it, it, it is 19th century Christology because it's rooted in the individual as sacred place. Right. It's the individual soul that repents, that has a, a, a soft heart, that turns to Jesus, who is redeemed through grace and the atonement. There's no discussion of the sacred place as temple. It's sacred place as individual. This is a long abstracted concept that emerges uh, from Judaism into Christianity, uh, into post-Reformation Protestant uh, religion with infinite atonement. And this is what we get in the Book of Mormon. So, uh, John, I want to make sure, because this is this is really cool. <laughs> I want to make sure I, no, I... You're basically saying that Israel, they come, that Jerusalem is sacked by the Babylonians. The elite, the, the scribes, the writers are hauled off on into Babylon. Jerusalem's basically ransacked, destroyed. The culture, the religion, the politics has all been destroyed. When Ezra comes back, or when the, when they come back, or the uh, was it Nebuchadnezzar who was it to let him come back? Uh, Cyrus, D Darius, yeah, yeah. So when he when he allows them to come back, they're going. We've got to recreate our culture, our scripture, our temple, but we can't do that. So we're going to make a book, the Torah, where we take all of our traditions, our culture, our temple traditions, and we put them into a book. And we create a book, and this is the law that we will follow, and this becomes the rabbinic period, the rabbinic laws, and that's why the, the Jewish culture now, the law is what Jew, Judaism is all about, is the Correct. law. It's not about the temple, it's not about God, it's about the law, and that's the problem Judaism solves, is the law, and the law is created with the Torah at the time they're returning from Babylon to recreate the culture for a people who had been dispersed. Boom. Right. That is exactly. a, you nailed it, Landon. You nailed an it. Awesome, and it's about uh, the individual. That's the part that stood out to me. It is now the individual. Yeah. The individual now connects through the law. And in Judaism, you don't really connect to God per se. You're more connected to the law, the law. Obedience to the law is what connects you to God. In the old world, the axis mundi that connected you to the divine was the sacred place, the temple, mediated through sacred ritual, the dances and the cosmology, which wed heaven and earth, 
which ran your political structure. In this new world, and again, takes centuries, the Axis Mundi is the individual that communes with the law through a written text to encounter the divine. Okay, and that process takes place really because the Jews became politically dispossessed. Now, why did Rome never evolve into monotheism? They were polytheistic, had an alphabetic script. What I'm showing is there's multiple threads that form monotheism. And uh, we get monotheism emerging from two cultures, Judaism and Christianity. And of course, Christianity is an innovation of Judaism. But both those cultures are politically dispossessed cultures. They do not have a throne. And ultimately, I mean, the Jews rebuild their temple. But, you know, the northern kingdom was destroyed and never reorganized. The southern kingdom was wiped out. And at that point, they're like, we're going to do something different. We're, 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 we're going to put this in into the law, into Torah, which is in writing, which is in a book. And now religion is textual. And slowly that changes everything. Everything... Um, you you worship through a text. This is what the this is the world of the Book of Mormon. So, but and the the Torah yes. is the Pentateuch is the five books of Moses. That's why it was anachronistic when Lehi left with it because it hasn't been put together. It has not it been not put happened. together. It has not been put together. Literally, I, I there's still, you know, the apologist because we have so little information. The apologists can say, oh no, they already already had written it. But all, all the evidence we have is they're still dancing. In, you know, they're still doing dample, temple dance. Just read uh, Margaret Barker's work where she reconstitute First Temple Judaism. And it's in a completely different thought world. It's the, the thought world that we've been talking about with the Maya. So um, in any case, what I'm just showing is it takes centuries of evolution and it's alphabetic script that allows then this kind of religiosity to percolate and to mold around uh, monotheism. Just one other question on monotheism, um, because I know apologists are going to go there. Uh, Akhenaten in the in yes. Egypt, he made an attempt at monotheism, not long lasted, but he made an attempt. How does that? Uh, sure enough. So there's a few forays into monotheism uh, before uh, sixth century Judaism. And probably the best well-known is Akhenaten, Amenhotep, uh, Akhenaten. The, the Aten is become, once again, this theology appears to surround one creator God, the Aten, the sun, which uh, is the organizing force that organizes absolutely everything. However, uh was it pure monotheism? It's actually not so simple. They, you know, they still had divine spirits. Even when the Torah is written, um, there's a belief in angelology, right? The Zohar lists 10 different ranks of angels that help manage the cosmos. So you have Yahweh, a monotheistic God, and then ranks of angels that actually used to be the other gods in the old polytheistic systems, but they've been reduced to you know, divine subordinates that help run the cosmos. Well, the Aten may have had that same uh, relationship with other, with, with the other divine powers in that priesthood order. However, the Aten lasts one lifetime, 
right? That's uh, uh, Akhenaten. And uh, furthermore, Akhenaten is um, physically uh, deformed. And so he spent, he, you, know, you know, being king, being fair, you know, in order to be a pharaoh, you had to perform your annual dances. This is literal. The, the uh, said festival, uh, the pharaoh had to do a cosmic dance around the great courtyard uh, that represented the recreation of the world. Um, in the pyramid texts, you know, while we're at it, uh, the, the pharaoh needs all needs to know all the proper dances in the underworld in order to pass through the underworld. And there's a group of watchers who dance for him. So the entire ritual is being danced. And in order to run your cosmos, you have to dance it. And it turns out this is what we find in Mesoamerica. The Mayan priests, who are all royalty, are performing dances that are not only religious, but they're political. The, the, the royal elite, in fact, the um, earliest text we have of a dance in, uh, in the Mayan world is Olmec. No, no, it's Mayan. Now I'm trying to remember the date. It's in the BCEs. But again, we learned that uh, Mayan history is really short statements of place, sacred place, name, and event, right? And so uh, I cannot actually remember the date. It's two, three, four hundred BCE, where the king, the event that's being memorialized is the dance he did for the city, <laughs> right? He's doing the sacred dance that re-engenders the cosmos it's a creation dance and and so um in any case i totally lost where i was going <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter wherever you go is amazing so that's exactly it well i i i just this thought world is is nowhere in the book of mormon uh the book of mormon all of religion has been transferred to the individual relationship with the divine through a text which is sermonized internalized and 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 put into a process of individual repentance with an individual relationship with the divine that's not occurring that's not even occurring during the writing of the torah i don't even think it's occurring in the early centuries of christianity um so this is a long process but the book of mormon requires us to believe it's happened before they've even left Jerusalem. We talk and of Christ, we preach of Adam. Christ, we rejoice in Christ. Right. This is uh, Second Nephi. This is 600 BCE when this has already happened. And it doesn't exist. That right. thought process, that it concept, none of that exists. There was something else I wanted to say there, but I can't remember. I just It'll come back to you and we'll go back. I, I just wanted to make <laughs> the point that... Um, the political order is every much tied up in this process of polytheism and monotheism of literacy and orality than the, the religious order. They're the same thing. So that's that's a thread that's going to uh, be woven into how history unfolds. And, and then I'm just going to uh, how are we doing on time? I haven't actually. We are fine. We can go Mormon stories level if you want. This is amazing. <laughs> I just looked at the time. It's oh my. Unless you have to leave for dinner, if you have to leave. For no, dinner, I don't have to leave. But I, I, I really <laughs> don't want to do this in under. Uh, I, I do want to do this in under two hours. So let, let's right. speed well, through let's this. Let's keep going. Um, one of the main differences between 
the Mayan thought world, for example, and the thought world of the Book of Mormon is in its very notion of how the universe is made. Um, this is so radically different than when I first started to encounter it. I, you know, it took me a long time to wrap my mind around it uh, because it's such a different way of thinking. Uh, Lanny, could you read the text block for me? Yeah. What differences in thinking in a culture occur when the cosmos is imagined, not composed of pieces and parts, but of forces and influences? When creation is a vibration that causes material forms, one mimics the creation through song and dance. This scene wed to analogical thinking produces many cultural structures that to us seem bizarre. All right. So look, we, we just have this cosmovision where the universe is made up of atoms and quarks, you know, of pieces and parts, billiard balls, you know, and there are forces, they hit each other and they, they merge and they destroy and create, but we have a very noun based cosmology. Things are made of things, right? I mean, the, the universe is made of things. It appears they didn't think that way. The universe wasn't made of the things were the illusion. Uh, the universe was made of forces, emanations, powers that came from the divine world and they congealed into material things, but the universe itself was made of interacting forces. So if you want to encounter, if you want to interact with the divine, uh, what do you do? Well, you don't, you certainly don't read a text. You engage by mimicking the force or the power or the influence that is happening. So they, they watch the stars rise and set, the sun rise and set through the entire year. Everything was movement. And this movement was uh, a power. The Aztec called it tolot. It's the, the power that causes things to emerge. And, and you have to interact with that power in order to influence it. And so how do you in, interact with a force that moves? Well, then you move, you dance. Your dance is mimicking the force that moves. And so they literally are, are dancing their religion because that's how they see the universe. They see the universe as a dance. Um, this is so separated from textual religion but we find this, again, in the old world and in the new world, uh, occupying a millennium of thought. Now, there's one other piece to this, and that is analogical thinking. The universe is composed of verbs, not nouns. And if there's any two things that look like each other, any two nouns that look like each other, they have the same shape or they merge at the same time or they might even have the same color. They are related through the verbs, <laughs> right? And so, again, but if two things, um, again, astrological thinking, when that star rises on the horizon and that plant begins to grow, they connect them through analogical thought. That star is causing that plant to grow. Well, they're connected through the divine force or emanation the star is emitting. So really, the God isn't so much the star or the plant, it's the force that connects the two, that causes the plant to emerge, right? Again, trying to wrap your mind around it, but this is at the root of one of the most basic religious structures in 
the Americas, and that's human sacrifice. And I want to talk about that because human sacrifice exists pretty much through the entire Book of Mormon timeline. And it's part of their religious cosmovision. They dance a ritual and then sacrifice a victim to get the divine emanation from the divine world to keep this material world going. And they want to influence their feeding the gods so that the gods will feed them right through this divine interaction. Just before you go there, John, um, I want to say one thing, if you don't mind. You bet. This really ties in. In our book club, we read a book, and I believe that it came out of Braiding Sweetgrass, which is actually by a Native American person. And they brought up exactly that thing that she mentioned that in their language, a river was not a noun. A river was a verb because it was movement. It tied things. It moved things in nature. And it was a verb. And I thought, wow, how cool was that? And now I hear this, and it just brings it wow, the, the Native Americans thinking and seeing it as a verb versus a noun. It, I, it, because I don't think that way, I've not been trained to think that way. I, 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 I stumble on this all the time. When I'm reading an ancient text, every once in a while I have to remind myself, how, how does the text read if the universe is made out of verbs instead of nouns, right? If these gods are verbs instead of nouns. Um, and it changes it changes the way you see it. Um, uh, and it's extremely difficult to do. <laughs> so, well, are, wouldn't you say we're locked in our literary construct? Uh, I mean, that's yes, something I took are. away we... from our field trip together that we yes. talked about in the last video that you said you, those of us that are here on the trip, you can't think like they think. There's no way you can make your mind do that. You can try to understand. You can think maybe around it but you cannot get there because we're blocked by that literary construct. Right. We see, we accept the book of Mormon as it is because it's a literary construct, just like we think it makes perfect sense. So that's why this is just so fascinating. My, my brain is like on fire right now. I'm just, I just love it. Great. Excellent comment, Rebecca. It, yeah. Epistemological wall between our thought world and theirs, but this thought world is in Mesoamerica. The, the, they're behind the epistemological wall. And yet I can read the Book of Mormon as if it was written uh, in the 18... Oh, wait, it was written in the 1800s. But that's <laughs> when it was written. That's when it was conceived. Exactly. The conception of it is that time frame, right? It, it cannot be a tight translation. All right, so here, here I'm just going to quickly go over a few motifs because um, I really... I don't know. I won't care about the time. Here we have do a... Do not uh, care. Please a, do not care. Stone palette. Uh, emerging from the Central Andes, 600 and 900 BC. I know this is not Mesoamerica or North America, but I'm just going to show you uh, this motif through uh, South, Central, and North America. Okay, this is early 600 and 900 BCE. We have uh, it's a place like Sechen Bajo uh, beheading scenes as early as 1650 BCE. Uh, but here is a very common motif that we find in the Americas in different forms, in different variations, but it's called the sprouting head motif. This left image, you have this uh, jaguar uh, icon holding a decapitated head with uh, floral vines, uh, plant vines emerging from the center. They're linking the decapitated head with fertility. And we're going to talk about why they do that. 
because this is everywhere. This is the thought world of this world. Uh, also in Peru, this is later, this is Nazca culture. We find a trophy head, which is, I mean, literally that's a head of a human being with a rope coming out of its skull, which they hung as a trophy. Uh, and that's Nazca culture between 100 BCE and 500 CE. Um, where these heads are found. They found several heads and decapitated skeletons. So they know that they're ritually taking heads and they're, they're doing it for two purposes. Well, they're doing it for the fertility and they're doing it for the political power. The sprouting head motif is their fertility. The trophy head is for the political power. Uh, but again, these are merged together. Um, here is, so this is late Chichen Itza. Here on the left, you have a uh, Mayan warrior playing the ball game. Uh, and so interestingly enough, the ball game is completely rooted in a completely different thought world, this thought world. And almost every city has a ball court where the ball game was played. Um, and it, the ball game in some way reenacts their creation story which deals with the hero twins going through the underworld, getting beheaded and uh, bringing up the powers of fertility from the underworld into their agricultural cycle. And so you have this warrior and you see in his left hand, what's below it. Yeah. A decapitated head. A head. <laughs> he's got the decapitated head. He's in armor and all sprouting out of him are these serpent heads. This is the sprouting head motif. This is the power of fertility. And what we're looking at again is a verb, not a noun. <laughs> so this is the power of the divine unfolding through the ritual act of taking a head. And they're doing this in their ball court. And then uh, in Chichen Itza, you have these walls of skulls that are, you know, basically skull racks, but these are your trophy heads. These are the heads of your vanquished enemies uh, that you take that bring power to your city. Well, it turns out the sprouting head motif and the trophy head are essentially doing the same thing. They're bringing cosmic power into the land, into the sacred place. The city is the sacred place. You have to go to the, the, the do the ritual in the sacred place in order to encounter the divine. And in this thought world, an essential part of that ritual was to take a human sacrificial head. Okay. Well, guess what? I, I do this. And so I have to at least show your audience a few of my photos. <laughs> yes, you do. This, yes, this you is do. A, a pictograph in northeastern Utah. Uh, so this is late Fremont between 1000 and 1300 CE. And that guy's a solar deity. And for seven days a year, there, the light descends down on this rock face and perfectly fills his headdress. Three days before summer solstice, summer solstice, three days after summer solstice. So the sun right there is filling this figure's headdress uh, on the days of summer solstice. Um, interestingly enough, very hard to see. And for the first year, <laughs> We looked at this. I didn't even notice it until I was there on spring equinox filming it and it popped out as bright as day. But there is a little form there. Yeah. I don't know. Can you see my mouse? Yes. Yes. There's a little lump beneath his left arm. 
right? That is the same thing. Is that a this. head? He's holding a head. He's holding a head. Oh my goodness. Okay. He's holding a head. And furthermore, the sun is taking his head. That's what's going on there with that head. And, and we know he's holding a head because here we have the same figure with the same headdress. He's holding a fringe staff, which is a rain staff. It's a fertility staff. There's your serpents coming out of the Mayan warrior. Okay. And look what's happening here. He's holding heads. He's there's that lump. This is a, this is a head and this figure. I mean, these holes are bullet holes. The people are shooting them out, but those two holes there are not bullet holes. Those are carved in. Those are eyes in a head and he's taking a head. So this is Fremont culture, 1000 to 1300 CE, you know, well after uh, the book of Mormon times, but it's a tie to, it's tied to the agricultural cycle. And they're growing maize up in Northeastern Utah. Uh, between 250 CE until they abandoned the site at 1300 CE. Um, but then we also find uh, a scalp. This is what a proper scalp looks like. You've heard of scalping, right? Mm -hmm. Native Americans uh, would take the top of the head, right? Just the hair in, in a scalp. But a proper scalp is defleshing the entire skull. And this scalp is the entire skull with hair and eyelids, and it's dated to bas late basket makers. So it's at the basket makers, 1200 to 200 BCE. Uh, so that scalp is probably at the latter end of that period, you know, 500 to 200 BCE. But it shows you that they're taking scalps in the BCEs. And it's got a leather loop coming out of the top of the scalp to hang. This is your fertility head. And this is your trophy head. Okay, and this is in the American Southwest. So this scalp was found in Arizona, uh, dating into the BCEs. So you have this uh, head taking going on uh, for, well, I'm not going to get into uh, the dating. It's going on for a very long time. We have human sacrifice in Central America that we can definitely pinpoint uh, between zero CE forwards, the Teotihuacan had child human sacrifice, the Mayans had child human sacrifice, and they had head taking. Uh, we get um, before that, probably human sacrifice found in bogs where sacrifices were thrown in Olmec culture going back to 650 BCE. In Peru, it goes back into the second millennium BCE. Uh, our texts and our iconography in in the Maya, you're you're looking at 200 BCE and forward, right? So we know this is going on in the Book of Mormon period, but it's going on because it's essential. And this is, uh, you know, this is what we, the Mayan knew that murder was wrong, but human sacrifice was moral. So that's that's hard to get your mind around, but it was a, a necessary constituent of running the cosmos so why well again there's all kinds of relationships that we've forgotten when maize was domesticated and it was domesticated between four and seven thousand bce depending on which scholarly paper you read when maize is domesticated a religion is invented 
right? Again, archaeologists speak only in material terms and they speak of it as a foodstuff that's being passed around and a technology that's being traded. But in fact, it's a religion that is moving. It, it might be better to say um, when the religion of maize moved, the, the maize was the byproduct. So you had to practice the religion of maize in order to get the maize. Um, agriculture and religion were synonymous. Head-taking and agriculture were synonymous. Why? Well, this is we're going to enter this different thought world. In the Pueblos, the American Southwest Pueblos, a name for a scalp meant seed being or rain being. The thing that was a seed or brought the rains. Um why, how would a head bring rains? In, in that uh, uh, previous pictograph, the, the figure is holding a head and a rain staff. The head is bringing the rains. In Mesoamerica, the heads brought the rains. The, the even, Venus's evening star in the north started the rain cycle. Uh, and, and so Chalk, the rain god, is... In every codex, he's seen holding a head and a knife, just like that pictograph. And he takes a head to bring and to, to cause the rains to come. Well, it turns out the head is an essential, the head is a verb, not a noun. So, two things about a head. This is this is this analogical thinking in this thought world. The head contains all the divine functions of the cosmos, where you see where you smell, where you hear, and where you speak. Your speech projects your will. So your speech is not only where you breathe and your nose, but it's where you project your will into the world. So all of that is contained in the head. All the divine functions, all the divine verbs are manifest in the head. Now, when a human is born, what happens? First thing that happens the woman water breaks. The birth is announced through the waters of human birth. They thought analogically, waters produce the head. The first thing that comes out of the womb is what? The head. The head. Oh the head. Goodness. So the head contains all the divine functions. It's where, it's where the divine functions manifest. Right. This is the divine realm right here on every person. And it is brought forth by waters. And it's the only thing that produces waters in tears. OK, so in a lot of these head taking motifs, there's a crying eye motif uh, where you see in Native American cultures, the lines coming out of the eyes. This is the divine substance of the divine force coming out into the material wor world through waters. And so literally the head is brought forth by waters and it creates waters. So if I wanna uh, perform a rain ceremony to bring the waters of the cosmos to my fields, what am I going to do? I'm going to offer the gods a head, right? I take what is cosmologically synonymous the divine uh, the human collects the divine power in the head i take that 
I offer it to the gods in a ritual. And in re the thing that produces water and is produced by waters in return, I will gain waters from the divine realm. And this is part of my rain ceremony. Well, clearly we don't think that way. <laughs> clearly. But, but why don't we think <laughs> that way? Why don't we? And why did they? Well, they thought that way because they're literally connecting, analogically connecting uh, all the verbs, all the processes they see in nature. And uh, they're seeing, you know, in order for the, my maze to grow, I mean, th th there are other aspect, aspects of it. The corn cob has silk coming out of the husk. And they interpreted that as hair. And the cob itself was a head. So when you cut the cob off, you were taking a head. This was the head the deity gave you. You gave him a head. He gave you the reins and the corn cob. Right? <laughs> Again, they thought this way because through literally thousands of years, as they domesticated and grew maize, they analogized the celestial cycle, the seasonal cycle, the agricultural cycle into uh, this is how it works. In order to keep it working, we got to give the gods sacrifices. So we're going to give it human sacrifice, sa sacrificial heads. So this is just another aspect of a really bizarre way of thinking that dominates the entire world. Now, my entire point then is how does that thinking that thinking is there through the Book of Mormon timeline, right? That is there at uh, Mosiah. I mean, we can prove that. So, and it's and there in South what, America, Central America, and North America. Yes, yeah, so North. Yes, South, Central, North. Everywhere. How? Uh, and that's what's running the society. That that's their cosmovision. Uh, so, not only are they running the agricultural. Uh, society, but they're taking trophy heads to get the divine essence of the enemy and empower their political state, right? They're not looking for votes. It's not a democracy. They want as much sacred power from by collecting it from the heads of their enemies, right? So the trophy head is built on, in the same cosmovision, and it and and it, it dominates the the religious cosmovision of every area now. Clearly, and can the I ask a Mormon. question? Yes. So you're saying they're not concerned with infant baptism. That isn't a concern <laughs> right now, right? I think that's what people need to realize. When you read the Book of Mormon and the things that they say that they're worried about, this has nothing to do with what the actual thought process in their, their cosmos was. They're not concerned with uh, infant baptism. Of course, I think the apologists would say here, well, yeah, that's what the Lamanites are doing, but the Nephites aren't. <laughs> yeah, separate societies, so I, different I, thought I patterns. I understand that. Perhaps. So this is what yeah. I'm about to address that. But just on your oh, point, Rebecca, the earliest proofs we have of human sacrifice are infants and children. Just, you know, just yeah. so you're aware. In, in yeah, Mesoamerica. I was being facetious. Just that there, this is nowhere yes. in their cosmos. No. These religious practices, these concerns over, you know, the minutiae of it, not at all. So look, this is the thought world that dominates the Americas all through the Book of Mormon timeline. When we read the Book of Mormon, clearly that is a completely different thought world. So the apologists must argue that a civilization 
that's fully literate, that had millions of people, that had the Book of Mormon cosmovision, which is historical, monotheistic, uh, deeply rooted in individual ethics, right? Sacred place is the individual with the divine, not a actual place that you have to pilgrimage to with the divine. Um, in order for that, I mean, that existed, but it was all destroyed. That entire complex was so thoroughly destroyed that all we have left are the Lamanite structures. All I can say is history doesn't work that way. And when you detach yourself from the rules of history, I can make the Book of Mormon work seven days a week, twice on Sundays. <laughs> um, well, that'd the, be breaking the Sabbath, though, John. Uh, <laughs> yeah, working too hard. The uh, <laughs> Look, uh, history isn't linear or fract uh, linear or cyclical. It's fractal. We, we only have a few pieces of history, but every piece contains something we don't have. And all that we don't have is contained in the pieces that we do have. That's what a fractal is. So the Book of Mormon gives us a world, a worldview. And we can, we can look at that and say, well, this is what I have to find in order for this worldview to exist. So I have to go out there and I have to find writing, but I have to find Semitic alphabetic writing. I, I'm, I, my writing doesn't qualify. I, I need to find the kind of writing that they're doing. They're going to say, and they do, you're not going to find it because it was completely destroyed. Please know that when I make my arguments, I'm arguing from the evidence we do have, and the apologists are arguing from the evidence we don't have. And when you argue from the evidence we don't have, true enough, it is very hard to win that argument because <laughs> there's always more evidence you don't have. <laughs> and so, and so uh, that repeatedly they say it's gone. We just haven't found it yet. So you, uh, it's there, but it was all destroyed. So we don't have it. All we have is the text of the Book of Mormon. Well, I'm sorry, but the text of the Book of Mormon tells me that I must find thousands of ancient texts, uh, alphabetic texts, producing the thought world of the Book of Mormon. I, th that's not optional. And in, in 200 years ago, when the Book of Mormon was written, actually, we didn't know. You could, you could say, you could say that. 100 years ago, you could say that. But in 2023, if you're telling me we don't know where the Book of Mormon took place, it didn't. Um, so... Uh, this is the argument that they retract to. It's gone. We haven't found it yet, right? I um, So this thought world of all this human sacrifice, that, that's what the Lamanites developed. Well, they developed it co-concurrent with the Nephites because this was happening during the Nephite civilization. And the entire impetus of warfare in, in the Book of Mormon is the Lamanites want their inheritance back. Nephi took it from them, right? It's a Jacob Esau story, whereas the Lamanites really just want their heads to grow their maize, <laughs> which is never mentioned, right? <laughs> uh, the Lamanites want their heads in, in order to empower their city-states. You know, the Nephites have an empire. It's a chief judge, centralized government run by tax, and all the cities have minor judges, Right. This is the political system of the Book of Mormon. 
and they're interconnected. Uh, Mesoamerica never had that system. There was no empire in Mesoamerica. It was a confederate. Every, every city state was its own sacred place with its own king. Okay. Um, so in the Book of Mormon, the Lamanites have a king that rule all the cities of the Lamanites. Well, in Mesoamerica, you have a confederacy of different kings running different cities who make alliances with each other. Okay. Uh, where is the, I, they say, oh, the Lamanites did that. Well, I'm sorry, the Lamanite world in the Book of Mormon can't be tracked to the, to the Mesoamerican world. Uh, where's their kingship? Where's their writing? Because they had writing. They wrote one to another. They were taught out of the scriptures. Their leaders were Nephites that abandoned the Nephite system. Where's their writing? Where, where, where's their centralized government? Well, and they came from the same family. They came from yes. the same place with the same skill set. So correct. Uh, so, um, uh, right. So they they have only one argument, as far as I can tell. They have only one argument, and that is, it's lost. <laughs> so, John, do you mind if I read out of the scriptures? You bet. Read. <laughs> Oh, dear, Landon. <laughs> so this is exactly I like the reading argument. the scriptures. Yeah, this is exactly the argument that they'll go to. Um, Mormon chapter nine, uh, oh, yes. verse 32. And now behold, we have written this record according to our knowledge in the characters which are called among us, the reformed Egyptian being handed down and altered by us according to our manner of speech. And if our plates had been sufficiently large, we should have written in Hebrew. But the Hebrew hath been altered by us also. And if we could have written in Hebrew, behold, you would have had no imperfections in our record. But the Lord knoweth the things which we have written, and also that none other people knoweth our language. And because that none other people knoweth our language, therefore he hath prepared means for the interpretation thereof. So they're going to say it was lost. The, the text says it was lost. The text right. predicts this. And, and only one person can translate. Yes, only and only one person can translate it, and God has prepared that person. What are your thoughts on that? They're going to say that Adam wrote a book and taught his yeah. children to read or write, because that's what the Pearl of Great Price says, and it's wrong. But that's Moroni chapter 9, right? That's uh, the uh, very Mormon, end. Mormon chapter 9, I think. Yeah. It, is it Mormon or Mormon, Moroni? Mormon chapter 9. Mormon yeah. chapter 9. So uh, this is the very end of the civilization where, by the way, tens of millions of people are killing each other, right? So yeah. what's that tell you? If you have tens of millions of people, you have a highly urbanized civilization that's entirely agricultural because you have to feed all those people uh, that are that is completely intermeshed with trade because you have to arm all those people. Where's those tens of millions of swords and spears coming from armor, right? Uh, so uh, that alone gives us an imprint of that kind of civilization. So and they have Hebrew and Reformed Egyptian, right? They have Hebrew and Reformed Egyptian. But no other people know their language. What other people are they talking about? Um, we, we already established the Lamanites came from the Nephites. Uh, their kings are uh, Nephite dissenters. They have the alphabetic script that the Nephites are using. If, if the Nephites just have a royal caste, uh, you know, let's say less than 5% of the civilization is reading and writing in their alphabetic script. Well, that's the royal caste. And 
part of those people defect to the Lamanites. So they bring that with them, right? And by the way, if you have a kingship of an empire, unless you're the Inca using textile quipu knots, you need writing, right? And so, so they're taking the same right. They're taking, if you follow the logic of the text, they're taking the same writing and the same culture into the Lamanite culture. And so when Mormon says, no people know our language, this is at the very Book of Mormon, end of the Book of Mormon, and it's a setup that Joseph Smith is writing because only he knows the language. No one else, actually no one, not, not the Nephites or the Lamanites or any of the scribes, any of the scholars, uh, not uh, Campbellites, not, not the, you know, no one knows the language except Joseph Smith. This is a setup. So, again, that's what's actually happening. But uh, sure enough, the apologists can say no other people know it. Well, that, that's not true to history. Uh, if your entire civilization is being run by text, we're going to find them. And uh, if we don't find them, you're arguing from the absence of evidence, not from the evidence we have. And, you know, I can't argue from the absence of evidence for too long. Um Again, it's a fully literate world. I, I <laughs> it's uh, it, it it's not emerging from Mesoamerica in this time period. Uh, that's 400 CE. 400 CE. We should be finding uh, tens of thousands of uh, texts running a Nephite monotheistic civilization. And even got okay. So another argument. Okay, let's say all the texts are gone. Well, how about the art? Exactly. How about, how about uh, right? Uh, show me your monotheistic. It's God who died on a cross. I mean, they know this. Where's the God of the cross uh, in, in your art uh, painted on every temple and palace? Again, uh, Lana and Rebecca, there's always another backflip to do. So there's never an art. Uh, there's never an end to the argument for the apologetics. I'm just saying this makes no rational sense. Um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna go over the multiverse argument and uh, <laughs> yes, the well, Ethiopian and again, I think model that the Book of Mormon happened in Ethiopia. Some of the other things we've it, heard. yeah, that that's was right, another the multiverse. I actually <laughs> believe that's no. I actually believe that's an answer. You know, a different realm, <laughs> a sort different, of like the spirit world that explains. I actually, it's string theory. I actually think that might be where people are going. And again, I think we need to stress, although we're talking about Mesoamerica now, um, we're talking nowhere, not heartland, nowhere is what we're talking. Because I know some people were a little confused on what we were saying before, that because we were speaking so much of Mesoamerica, which is the only place if it could have happened, it would have, didn't. But we're also talking all-encompassing. All-encompassing. All the Americas. All period. the Americas. Hey, guys, I made my first meme. I am oh, such look, an old, an old fuddy you. duddy, but your Trexmos <laughs> have inspired me. Oh yes, so this, the is, this is my first meme. Uh, <laughs> thou fool, thou shalt say an anachronism. We've got an anachronism. We need no more anachronism. Have you attained an anachronism, save it were by the Mormon prophets? Look, the iPhone to Abraham Lincoln is yeah. equivalent to the Book of Mormon to the Mayan. It's yeah. the same. It's it's a technology in a thinking system completely out of time and place. Uh, and so, and so I, you know, the Mesoamerican model is as 
problematic as the heartland model. You're not going to find it in South America either. Nowhere in the Americas. You really do have to go to Ethiopia. You might. Look, 0% of archaeology has been done in Antarctica. So you might find Nephite civilization in Antarctica amongst the emperor penguins and the polar bear kings of the ice slave mines. <laughs> under the ice? Under the ice? Because I was taught by my parents that the last 10 tribes were under the ice. That's right. That's right. The last 10. Yeah, I, that's what I, I was taught. I, I don't mean to be too uh, smarmy, I, I, but no. literally uh, it, the thought worlds are cannot be produced are not produced in the america so you have to say they're lost with no influence on the surrounding cultures right there's no remnant not only are are we not looking we're looking for material archaeology but also cultural archaeology the ideas of nephite civilization the ideas of sacred place being the individual Right, your individual commune with God in an act of divine grace, where the God is the only sacrifice necessary. Those ideas have no influence uh, on the surrounding cultures, and there's no material evidence uh, in the surrounding cultures. Um, everything has to be purged. Well, again, in the old world, I just, you know, we we kind of went over the, the slow evolution that occurs, but it doesn't occur backwards. I mean, it's 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 occurring through the information medium. So uh, as alphabetic texts are written and as the Jews are politically dispossessed, a new form of religiosity slowly emerges um, through their cultural, political and information system. And they're not going back to the pyramid texts. They're, they're, they've developed a textual religion that is dispossessed from place. The Book of Mormon religion is that religion because it's not rooted in place. It's rooted in individual, the individual's repentance with Jesus. So um, we, we have to think this is not only purged, but uh, all the influence, all the thought structures that an alphabetic text would have created and influenced are retrofitted back into secondary orality. Um, I mean, the culture and the material uh, archaeology, all has to be all has to be shifted. So I I it's not how history works. Um, and it's not what the Book of Mormon predicts. So I. But that is their last argument. I, you know, look, it's gone. So, uh, but it was there. I'm just saying no. All right. Any last questions? Because I'm I'm done. No. Uh, Are you done? That's incredible. <laughs> we we do want to point out that we did this episode to answer a lot of the questions that were raised from the first episode. Yes, we are still going to cover your last three points in a future yes. episode. But like a good professor, he wanted to answer the questions before he moved to the next ideas. Uh, and that's exactly. why we why we did this episode.
Yeah. And we had a lot of comments. We had a lot of great comments, you know, from apologists too, you know, just back and forth. And that's the thing, the dialogue and the discussion. We're not afraid of that at all. It's important. Go ahead, comment, uh, tell us what you're thinking. Uh, were you ever able to figure out that picture, Landon? My favorite picture. Yep. Okay, uh, I just I just need to show this um, because <laughs> this is um, some family members of mine, favorite picture. But, uh, you know, it's a picture of what I believe most people think the Book of Mormon world was like. And this is a picture of Mormon abridging the plates. Little tiny Moroni is playing under the desk. But, I mean, what do you see in this picture, John? <laughs> Remember your comment, Rebecca, that uh, writing takes an entire ecosystem of technology yes. Uh, yes. to produce? Look at that image. That is yeah. that is what is necessary. Uh Mormon and Moroni are compiling the plates off of a library of records. Yeah. Tell me the ecosystem that must be created in order for yeah. that to have, for this picture to exist. What else needs to exist? Rome, I think. Right. <laughs> Something like unto Rome with the That's right. For those of you who are listening, it's a room. It's almost like a cave. There are stairs. There's the sort of Laban. There's, you know, steel shields. There's shelves the of, of books and scrolls. There's a carpet. I mean, it's this very cozy literary scene uh, that is not rooted at all in reality. But I believe a lot of people think this is exactly what it was like, but impossible. Well, again, uh, Mayan codexes uh, were uh, synonymous with temple walls, <laughs> and they were filled with rituals. Yeah. Uh, so you did have a Mayan priest sitting down at a table painting a ritual. <laughs> well, maybe uh, you need to design a painting like this, uh, John, <laughs> that shows what it actually would really have looked like. I don't know. I think that's actually... But I understand a pen in his hand isn't it isn't yeah it? it is a pen it's a lighted pen no and you know i understand the appeal of the scene you know i mean it is it gives you chills if this is what you believe but none of this is rooted in reality so and i think that's what we're trying to trying to explain through talking to john so do you have any final statements or thoughts landon or john and then we will let our viewers go to sort of digest this i know when we talk to people at sunstone they're like i watched it twice the first episode i had to stop and think about it which is exactly right these concepts are very overarching they're complex but once you start to understand what john is talking about um, it's a whole new world of the way that you're looking at the text of the book of mormon well, it is, it, you know, it is complex. I, it's different. It's different. It's so different. I, you know, I, I how many people are, are going to enjoy this? I have no idea. I'm shocked that people, <laughs> but this is, um, you know, I, I'm just uh, applying this learning to the Book of Mormon and showing that mm -hmm. it just doesn't fit. Uh, history doesn't fit. The Book of Mormon doesn't fit history. I mean, yeah. um, existentially every, every every page it doesn't fit so um anyway that's that's my comment that's your comment do you want to give us a little preview on what our next one you said you were going to go through your next points or do you want to save that because we yeah, are having no, John back uh, everybody so, look i had thank you i had five theses uh, the next one yes. is the text of the book of mormon can be derived from the description of the gold plates and the characters we get from the scribes uh of the book of mormon can be falsified so uh this is a so now i'm leaving this entire discussion and i'm i'm, I'm going to um 
a lot of this has been talked about. You know, when I when I first started to deconstruct this, I didn't know it had been talked about. Uh, one of the things I did was just, uh, well, I can learn something about Reformed Egyptian if I just figure out the how, how much space and how many words, and that'll tell me what kind of writing system it was. So I'm I'm going to go over that. But having said that, I do have a few new ideas that I I haven't seen anywhere else embedded in this conversation. So we're going to go over uh, the plates, the writing, um, and what would be required uh, for the plates to get created and what kind of writing system uh, would be needed in order to write the text of the Book of Mormon on the plates. And it turns out, like the archaeology of the Book of Mormon, it's impossible. I, I you know, 99% improbable. One guy said, don't say impossible. You can't speak of certitudes in history. And you know what? He's right. That's 99% improbable that any of this happened. I, you know, the, the apologists can live in the 1% cracks, but that's the same 1% where people believe the aliens built the pyramids and Bigfoot is a trans-dimensional Sasquatch driving a spaceship over the North Pole. So <laughs> that also is possible. It is possible. I kind of believe some of those things you just <laughs> mentioned. I, don't, I, I was raised by conspiracy theorists. So sometimes my mind goes there. I'm like, mm. I'm a huge Bigfoot <laughs> fan. Really cool. I'm a huge Bigfoot fan. <laughs> I know. No, I am too. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. So yeah, I am yes. too. I still think, oh, he's well, awesome. I believe in so, Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, I, here you go. Now we've lost all credibility once we said that. So go ahead, comment, tell us that we believe in Bigfoot and we're way up. Now we've done it. We've done it. Landon, do you have any final comments? No, thanks. Thanks, John. Uh, yeah. Just for clearing this up, because uh, yep. so many questions and, you know, I get to just stand there and say, uh, we'll ask, we'll ask Dr. Lundwell. Yeah, we defer. We defer to Dr. Lundwell. That's exactly <laughs> right. So, so yeah. So as, as we said, again, this is sort of our second part, the first episode where we really introduce all of this. Um, you can look for that and then watch this as a follow-up. And then as we just learned, we're going to have Dr. Lundwell on again to delve into some more issues like this. And it's just absolutely fascinating. I hope you are all enjoying it like we are. We feel like we're just almost in another dimension of learning. It's it's so wonderful. And we're so um, thankful for Dr. Linville to come and talk to us. So anyway, uh, like and subscribe. If you guys would like to be notified when new episodes come out, go ahead and hit that notification bell. And you can always financially help support Mormonish if you'd like. We have links to PayPal and Venmo in the show notes description. And we just again like to say we appreciate all of our viewers and listeners and especially everybody that came up and talked to us at Sunstone. That was It was just really fun to meet a lot of you in person. John got the chance to meet a lot of people. And it's just really fun to put um, faces. You know, we, we talk to you guys and we feel like we, we know you guys. And now we actually do know a lot more of you. So we appreciate you a lot. And we'll say goodbye for now for Mormonish. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.